From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we'll hear about a woman who was looking for a sign, and then a king came into her life. It's like being looked at by a whale at that proximity. You know, you just can't, you can't see the whole animal. You just see like this huge face and the eye. Sherman De Silva grew up in a place where elephants were as ubiquitous as cats and dogs. I grew up in Sri Lanka, and elephants are a very, very big part of the culture in Sri Lanka. When I was growing up in the city, they were just kind of always part of the background where they would be part of you know, festivals and you know, sort of cultural events and, and you could see them at the zoo and everything like that. And Asian elephants were just sort of so commonplace, I thought. From the time that I was a kid, I was just fascinated. I loved animals. I don't know if that has something to do with being an only child because <laughs> I didn't have any siblings. Um, I had to sort of occupy myself a lot. So I kind of had these imaginary, I had these little plastic toys that I used to play with that I pretended, you know, were these wild animals roaming savannas and forests and things like that. And I watched, I just ate up nature documentaries. Like strangely, because I grew up in a city where I didn't really get to see wild animals aside from the occasional trip to the zoo it was just like such a a enticing thing you know just a mysterious thing and my family wasn't very kind of nature outdoorsy like we didn't do a lot of stuff we didn't even i didn't even know national parks existed in sri lanka at the time that i was growing up that's how kind of sheltered i was when I finally later on had to choose a sort of career path, I knew, I just, I just always knew I wanted to study animals, study biology, study uh, behavior in particular, just because it, I found it so fascinating. And in particular, Sherman wanted to study social behavior, communication. It goes back to, I think, also being an only child and having a vivid imagination because I had to keep myself busy. And, you know, if you don't have other people to talk to, you talk to animals. And I was interested in you know, whether there was anything like human language or what we call, we call, you know, language in the animal world. So when it came time to choose an animal to study, Sherman had a list of animals that used language. One of them was Asian elephants. When I first went into the field, and my my first year, my advisors gave me some sort of really general advice: <laughs> go out and you know pick a site, learn the individuals. That's that's all they told me. So I said, okay, you know I had no experience being out in nature. Really, I had no experience being around elephants. So my first summer, that was in like 2005, I went to try to sort of scope out where to work. Sherman's options were two national parks in Sri Lanka. The first was Yala National Park, which was appealing because people had done elephant research there before, so she wouldn't be starting from scratch. After a few days of sort of going into the park, I realized I wasn't seeing that many elephants. 
And it didn't seem like there were there was enough for me to actually do a, a behavioral study with. The other park was Udawalawe, which nobody had done elephant research in. When I went to Udawalawe, there were just tons of elephants. <laughs> they were just coming out of the woodwork, it seemed like. But I kind of it was very ambivalent about starting something uh, on my own, like no one had worked there substantially before. I would have to start everything from scratch. At times like this, I get a little spiritual and I look for direction. And so I started wishing, you know, for a sign of some kind, like where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? So one day Sherman was in the park. In Asian elephants, females don't have tusks. Only the bulls can have tusks. And not all bulls have tusks, so they're very rare. People paid attention to the tuskers. One particular bull in Udawalawe was named Raja, which means king. The first time I saw Raja, it was at a distance. We drove around the park to this very far corner of the park, the very tippy top of the reservoir, the Udawalawe Reservoir, which the park gets its name from and the river that it also gets its name from. And I saw this really distant white gleam, and that was Raja's tusk. And so I kind of looked at him through my binoculars. I wish we could see him closer, but, but he was too far away, so we left, and we decided to come back the next day. The next day, we came back. We rounded a corner, and he was just right in front of us. And that was my first really up-close encounter with a big bull. He was an adult male, prime of his life, probably in his 40s, maybe even his 50s. He was, at least to me, I'd never been around any elephants before. He seemed like a towering figure. And as we stopped there and we were looking at him, he moseyed along, just kind of nonchalant, kind of ignored the vehicle. He went over to the water, he drank, he sort of drank some water, poured water over himself. We are gonna just sit quietly and see what happens. And Raja came around and checked out the vehicle. He looked at us really hard. And the tracker that we had, he kind of at that point started talking and kind of really loud. And it was also approaching the end of the day. And because I was also totally inexperienced, I sort of handed over to him and we decided to leave. And I felt like I had the sign that I was looking for. It's really rare to see a tusker. And if you believe in things like, you know, good omens, good auspicious things, you know, that seemed like a good sign. What always seems like where I should be, I decided that I, I was going to study the females as sort of like the social groups, and I was interested in whether there was any sort of uh, matriarchal leadership in Asian elephants as it had been described in African elephants. I was just taking pictures of elephants, trying to identify them and give them names and IDs, 
And I would pick a group and I would just try to follow them all day. On this particular day, we were on this track that was in between the reservoir again in a sort of like grassy hillside. It's kind of, it's incredibly peaceful if there are no vehicles and there's no tourists around. At that time, the whole park was kind of reminiscent of more of an African savanna. It had these really tall grasslands and it had scrub and forest interspersed in areas where there was heavier forest. And the reservoir, which is man-made, kind of looks like this large lake. In the dry season, the water recedes and you get these plains on both sides that are short grass. And the elephants really like to come out and feed on the short grass and there's the water source too. So when the water dries up elsewhere, there's still this big water source. If you can imagine, it's just really quiet. And the only thing you could hear was the rustling of the grass and the wind sort of blowing very gently and occasionally sort of whipping up and making a roar. And so we were sitting there, we were watching a group of elephants. There was a female in estrus. So estrus is when a female becomes comes into her reproductive season. And it's very brief for an elephant. It can actually be just a few days. So during that period, these females, they sort of attract a lot of suitors. So there's a bunch of males that sort of hover around and are trying to get access. And so we were watching this group and there was a whole lot of action going on. The female was sort of in the middle of it. The group was sort of foraging all around. There were a bunch of males sort of jockeying for position and we were like completely engrossed in, in what was going on there. And then out of the sort of corner of our eye, we could see, we saw this gleam again, this white gleam of, we noticed it was Raja. He was making his way down the hillside, just very casually, you know, he, he doesn't move very fast, he kind of moseys, you know, walks nonchalantly over to the group, checks out the females, checks out the herds. Now the females got really excited, they started making noises and chirping, and, and they do this sort of like coy looking over the shoulder, they turn their backs to him, and they lift their tails and let, let him sniff them, and they all seem to get really excited when, when this bull shows up, like, oh my gosh, oh, oh such a fine looking bull. And I expected that, you know, he would, he would kind of stay there, but, but then for, for whatever reason, he decided to come and check us out. We were, you know, we were a few, I don't know, maybe like tens of meters away on, on, on the road. And he, and he came over to the vehicle this time, and I had no idea if he recognized the vehicle, you know, at all. My assistant grabbed the video camera and he was filming everything. I was trying to take notes. So we're sitting there in our seats, sort of holding our breaths, and Raja comes in first on one side and looks at us square on, and I could just see every every detail of his face, his wrinkles, his freckles, the hairs, and he just kind of looked at us for a little while. He was sniffing, and he was sort of tossing his trunk and curling it, and then he slowly walked over to the other side, and that's the side where, where I was sitting, and then, and then he like stared again it's like being looked at by a whale at that proximity you know you just can't you can't see the whole animal you just see like this huge face and the eye and then he and i stared at each other and i don't know how long that went on it was really quiet except for just 
the sound of the wind, and I could hear him breathing. And the sound of his breath kind of like, uh, I imagine is how it sounds when you're in, a, in like a cave or something, and there's like a gust going through, just this big whoosh in and a big whoosh out. It's like this cavernous echoing kind of sound. And he did that for a little while, and I could see his ears flapping. On the edges of his ears is this delicate pink, and it's tattered. Being an older elephant, his ears had accumulated all these little tears and cuts and things. They were so thin. They were like curtains. They were gently waving in the breeze. And I was taking all this in, and I completely forgot to like take notes or do anything. I was just like so engrossed in watching this animal up close. And then there was this tiny little breeze that picked up and one of the clasps hit the steel bars and started making this tapping noise. And then he kind of jerked and I jerked and, and like the spell was kind of broken. And then he moved off. And in that time, my assistant had been filming and we noticed that Raja was had a lot of gunshot holes. It looked like gunshot wounds. He had mostly wounds on his legs and he had one particular wound on his foot that looked like it had been festering earlier and then the park veterinarians had tried to treat it so it, it looked like it was healing. And it kind of amazed me because it told me that this was an animal that had been shot at by people. Here was an animal that could have associated people with violence and guns and, you know, and being a threat. But here he was inside this national park, like inches away from our vehicle, completely fine. It made me appreciate that they can discriminate who's a threat, who's not a threat and without generalizing it to our entire species, for which I was really grateful at that time. In the end, Sherman did learn a lot about the social behavior of Asian elephants, things that our species could maybe learn from too. The social dynamics of Asian elephants are different. They're more egalitarian, if you will. We think that the reason for that is because historically, the Asian habitats where they evolved were probably just more productive or more stable environments. So they you know, had more rainfall, they had more predictable resources in closer proximity. As your intuition might say, you know, when resources are more abundant, more stable, more plentiful, you can kind of relax, so to speak. You don't need as much of a strict hierarchy. When there are more constraints, that encourages you know, more competition, which should drive more, more hierarchy. But it also has a consequence, it has this interesting consequence that you know, in this social structure of African elephants, as people know it, you know, with this matriarch and this sort of centralized leadership, well, that doesn't really exist in Asian elephants. Because if you can afford to be more individualistic in your decisions, if you don't need to tolerate being subordinate to someone, if you don't need to tolerate being dominated, 
because resources are available and you can kind of go wherever you, you want, it means that you can't really have a leader. It doesn't create the conditions for, for there being strong central leadership. And those are potentially things that might be interesting and could transfer to human societies. And actually, in our study of dominance hierarchies, we drew from literature on studies of human societies and human hunter-gatherer societies, which are also sort of famously egalitarian compared to the more settled and civilized agrarian societies that came up later on. So it's interesting to think about how whether the same sorts of you know, forces might have shaped our early human ancestors. Throughout her PhD, Sherman returned a lot to Udawalawe. We saw him again year after year, and he was a sort of the dominant bull in the park. So he probably sired several calves. But then finally in 2008, we saw him with a, an injury to his trunk where the tip of his trunk looked like it had been either caught in a snare or somebody had taken a knife to it. It wasn't clear how, how it had happened, but it kind of was hanging a little bit. So we didn't see Raja after around 2008. And with that, you know, I kind of think as this dynasty, the dynasty of Raja came to an end. And then the next dynasty, the new Tusker, his name was Sumedha, the next dynasty sort of began. Our storyteller was Sherman De Silva. She's the founder of Trunks and Leaves, a nonprofit that does research and brings awareness to the plight of Asian elephants, which are much more endangered than their African counterparts. You can find out ways to be an ethical tourist at trunksandleaves.org and see photos of Raja and Sherman when you follow us at Human Nature Pod. I'm Erin Jones. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human.